the first Sunday of the month is always my favorite Sunday because we celebrate the Lord's Supper or Communion. And we have the elements of that celebration on the table before us, the bread, as Jesus told us to use, and the fruit of the vine, wine or grape juice in our case. And uh, we share together in, in something that Jesus himself told us to do and gave us the pattern for how to do it. And when we celebrate this, we try to use the whole service to help people prepare their hearts and be ready for sharing together in that. And I try to use even the message, regardless of what the passage is, to try to orient people towards that. But that isn't hard to do because all of the Bible is about Jesus Christ. As a professor of mine used to say, you cut the Bible anywhere, it it will bleed the blood of Christ. Now, I'd like to start in this way. I have a son named Ben. He's 31 years old. And Ben is um, inexplicably very funny. And I remember when he graduated college and he took a job in Iowa, first real job, you know, and he had to move to Iowa. And all he knew about Iowa was it's full of cornfields. And as he got in his car, his mother and I were both sobbing tears of joy that Ben was leaving. And we went out in the driveway, and here's what Ben said as he got in the car. He said, I'm going to find me a corn-fed gal. (laughs) And uh, four years later, he married a farmer's daughter. (laughs) Lovely young woman named Rachel, and her parents and grandparents are all farmers. One year, we went for Thanksgiving dinner to one of the grandparents' home in central Illinois, and they they farm hundreds of acres, an old man. And I, I don't know a lot about farming. My father had a big uh, garden in the backyard where he grew all kinds of vegetables and things, and I had to help at times, but I don't really know much about farming. And this, this old man was explaining to me about preparing fields in the spring. And one of the things he, he indicated was that after you plow the fields, when you plant seed, the, the day that you've planted all the seed, the fields don't really look any different than they did in the morning. They're plowed fields. Now, uh, a farmer might see some differences, but to an untrained eye, they look exactly the same. The only difference is below the surface now there are seeds that have been planted. So the farmer does what he needs to do depending on the crop, waters it, fertilizes it, so forth. And depending on what you're growing, it may take one to three weeks for anything to germinate, but one day you go out to the field and green things are sticking up through it. If it's, if it's corn, there's just straight rows of little green sprouts. And if it's uh, something like wheat, it's just a carpet of green out there. And you see that. And, and that's a sign that something's going to come. And those things bear fruit. Well, that simple illustration of farming that's understandable to us is something that Jesus used constantly. The apostles used it. It's found in the Old Testament. It's the, the basic idea that a seed contains life inside of it. And when you plant a seed, there's only so much you can do. You can plant it. You can water it. You can feed it. But there's something called germination that is beyond your control. Some seeds are sterile, and they'll never germinate no matter what you do. Most seeds aren't. And if you put them in the right conditions, most of them will bear fruit. And the Bible attributes that germination, that mysterious thing, to God. 
And it pictures the truth as things that God plants inside of us. And he does that by other emissaries, teachers and parents and things we read and and all sorts of of, uh, things help us to gain these seeds. And we can water them, you might say. We can feed them, but only God can cause them to grow and sprout and bear fruit. And that's an image I want you to use when you think about this passage that our sister just read to us. This is a story traditionally called the Transfiguration. And it's a point where Jesus revealed something to his closest disciples that no one else was able to see. It's a unique story that's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of the Synoptic Gospels. In fact, interestingly, they all appear at the same place. It's it's almost like the Gospels, which are basically chronological, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but they differ in where they put some things because they're not pretending to be strictly just Jesus did this on this day and this on this day. They're meant to be persuasive. They took things they remembered and put them in different places. But this is a place, about one year before the end of Jesus' ministry, where all three of the Gospels converge in a number of events. Peter confesses Christ. Jesus begins to uh, predict his, his death and resurrection. Jesus talks about discipleship, as Paul talked last week, and then the transfiguration. All of these things are meant to show that there's really significant things happening as Jesus now turns from spending all his time in the northern area of Galilee, where he was from, to make his way to Jerusalem, where he will eventually die. Now, This is a story that is meant to fulfill the last verse of the last chapter, which wasn't read to us. That verse said, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And what happens is, it says six days later, Jesus took three of the disciples, the three closest ones, and we only know that because they appear more times alone with Jesus than anyone else. Peter, James, and John, he takes them up on a high mountain, and there it says he was transfigured before them or transformed in appearance. He shines brilliantly, and with him there's Moses and Elijah speaking. Now what happens is the the apostles, the three apostles who go with him up there, they are exposed to some really significant facts about Jesus. These are things they're trying to put together in their understanding of the Old Testament and of Jesus being Messiah. And Jesus had already brought them to the point of confessing, you are the Messiah. But now he's going to spend the rest of his ministry filling in their understanding of what that means and what these These people picture, these three people, as they're having seeds planted inside of them, but when they come down the mountain, they look like a field that's freshly plowed, and you can't tell if seeds have been sown. We know they have from the story, but it's going to take a long time before these seeds bear fruit. And there's some instructive things in that for us. Now let's think about what they learned when they went up there. We're told they went up on this high mountain, and Jesus was transfigured. This light shone out of him, as though his clothing, his exterior melted away and he was brilliant. And along with him, there's Moses and Elijah. We don't know how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. Obviously, this is a brief description of something that took place, that there was more happening. But Moses and Elijah are with him. And that's most significant. 
that he is conversing with Moses and Elijah. And the reason is this. The Old Testament, as we call it, the Hebrew Bible, among the Jewish people is divided into three parts today. And that's why you, you might hear a Jewish person refer to their Bible as Tanakh. Tanakh stands for Torah, law, Nevi'im, prophets, and Ketuvim, writings. The law, the prophets, and the writings. Those are the three broad categories into which all the material of the Old Testament is organized in the Hebrew Bible. And sometimes it's simply called the law and the prophets. And in a few places, the whole Old Testament is just called the law. Like the earlier parts can refer to the whole thing if you want them to. But here's a place where it's the law and the prophets, and those who represent the law and the prophets are present with Jesus. Moses is obviously representative of the law. He was the person who led Israel out of Egypt. He went up on the mountain, received the law from God, and came down and gave it to the people. And he was the great lawgiver. Everyone knew that. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, which are called Torah, law, or covenant instruction. And Elijah, on the other hand, represents the prophets. Now, he wasn't the first prophet, Abraham is called a prophet at the very beginning of the Bible. But there was a prophetic movement in Israel's history as the kingdom split apart, where God raised up individual prophets who spoke to the people and called them back to the covenant. And the first of those great prophets is Elijah. Elijah didn't write anything. There's no book of Elijah in the Bible. He was not a writing prophet, but he was the first prophet... We have a great deal of information about him in 1 Kings through the end of 1 Kings and into 2 Kings. And he represents the great prophets who spoke to the people and called them back to God. So here are the law and the prophets, their representatives, speaking to Jesus. And it's obvious that they were meant to draw from this. Jesus is the one who is going to carry to completion everything that the Old Testament scriptures were about. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And uh, they didn't understand that, apparently. They saw Jesus as another particularly important person, along with Moses and Elijah. So what we're told is that here's how uh, Peter responded. He said, it's good for us to be here. And that's a, a majestic understatement. In fact... Uh, Mark adds the words, like in parentheses, he didn't know what to say. Peter was this really impetuous person. He's one of those people who, you know, when the conversation gets awkward or quiet, he's got to say something. Doesn't matter how intelligent it is, he's just got to say something. And here's, he didn't know what to say. Here's these really important people. And he says, uh, it's good for us to be here. We'll build three tents for you, like three shelters, so that you can get out of the hot Middle Eastern sun and you can converse together. And... um, he obviously didn't grasp what was going on. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Moses himself, at the very end of his life, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, before he died, said to the people of Israel, God is going to raise up a prophet like me from among your brethren, your brothers. You must listen to him. So everyone from that point forward was waiting for the prophet who would be like Moses. That is, the one who would, so to speak, reaffirm everything that God had done on Mount Sinai, the very foundation of the Old Testament system of faith. He was going to be at least as important as Moses, and because he was going to fulfill what Moses predicted, he was going to be greater than Moses, 
but it appears that the apostles, that was something that they only dimly understood. It was like a seed planted inside of them, but they couldn't grasp the significance of it. Now, we know that that seed bore fruit because even though the next year was a time of God, through Jesus, building their understanding of things very slowly, even though that was the case when it came to fruition, they planted churches that, at the end of Peter's lifetime, dotted the landscape of the entire Roman Empire. And Peter said at the end of his ministry, he said the prophets looked forward. They tried to understand what was going to happen when Christ appeared, how he was going to suffer and reign. That was Peter's big struggle and the other apostles. How could the Messiah do both those things? They looked forward and they tried to see these things, but they were speaking of something that we could only understand when it is fulfilled. Peter was really giving a personal testimony. I couldn't understand these things until I saw the fulfillment. And then it all started to come together like the pieces of a puzzle falling into place. I began to grasp, oh, that's who Jesus is and what he did. But at this point in the Gospels, they're not yet there. That's the first thing they meant. They were meant to grasp. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Now, the second thing that's embedded in that part of the story is this whole idea of transformation, transfiguration. What is um, interesting is that Moses also experienced something like this. There's sort of a parallel in the person of Moses in that Moses, we're told in Exodus 34, went up on the mountain to receive the law from God. And when he came down from the mountain, the people could see that his face was shining with a brilliance. It's described as almost like a really, really bad sunburn that was shown on his face. And they could see this and they were mystified by it because he'd been in the very presence of God. And we're told that every time Moses went into the presence of God, his face would shine and he would come down and speak to the people. But in between, he would put this um, mask over his face to cover it. The Old Testament doesn't answer why he did this, but Paul says he did it to cover up the fading glory, that it wasn't lasting. It's what represented the law that God had given, which is very important. It's not that it's untrue. It's that it was meant to be fulfilled by the gospel. And Moses' face that shined was shining with a reflected glory. He'd been in the presence of God, who like brilliant light affected his very appearance. But as time went on, it faded away. Now, this that happens in the transfiguration is not meant to be the same kind of thing, showing that Jesus is like Moses. It's very different. Jesus shines with unreflected glory, with inherent glory, that which belongs to him. The way we would describe knowing much more about who Jesus is and what he did is that when Jesus was born of the virgin, he pre-existed that time. He didn't come into being when he was born as a human baby. He was the eternal second person of the Trinity, existing in the worship and praise of the hosts of heaven. And at a point in time, this grand person assumed a human nature in an infant child, and his human nature and his divine nature were connected to one another. But what happened is, in his earthly life, he designed it such that his human nature covered, hid his deity. Everyone who saw him walking down the street didn't know who he was, what his real significance was. 
At the end of his life, they called him Jew boy and pulled out his beard and hung him on a cross. They did not grasp who it was they were dealing with. But the apostles are those who, while they didn't grasp it either, it was a slowly dawning light, or you might say it was the fruit of seeds long before planted that eventually began to germinate and take root and grow and bear the fruit of a full understanding of who Jesus was. But at this point in the gospel story, they don't have that. They don't understand that. They're still dimly trying to understand who the Messiah is. Now, did they have faith in him? Evidently. They trusted him, and their faith was sufficient that we would call it saving faith. They had a relationship with Jesus Christ, a saving relationship in which they belonged to him. Their sins were forgiven. They were born again, to use Jesus' own words. That had already happened, and that's evident in the confession of Peter just six days before. However, that was not sufficient to carry them through a life of discipleship. That experience, that confession, was like the foundation that was absolutely necessary to build on. They had to have that basic faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior in order for them to build a life of discipleship. But Jesus' concern was far more than just their trust in him as their Savior. He wanted to build their understanding, their whole worldview into a coherent whole so that they could then live for him and withstand the storms that were going to come to them as they sought to start the Christian movement. And this is a little part of it. As they go up on the mountain and they see these things, and what they see in the transfiguration is that Jesus is the Lord of glory. But they didn't grasp what that meant. They see Jesus shining in in that unreflected light that was his very nature as the second person of the Trinity for all eternity. They saw, to use the words of the psalmist, the king in all his beauty, in all of his glory is presented before them. And those who are around him, Moses and Elijah, are also reflected in that glory, but the glory only reflects off them. It comes from Jesus. But they didn't understand what they were seeing. Again, it was like a seed that was being planted inside of them. It was only later that it really took root and grew up. Think of the words of Paul 30 years after the gospel story here when he wrote to the Corinthians and he said, none of the rulers of this world understood who Jesus was because if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But that is what they did because they didn't grasp who he was and they were not even open to learning who he was. Well, these people were open and God was planting seeds inside of them through Jesus and and. They, they were meant to gather. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets, number one. And Jesus is the Lord of glory, number two. But there's a third thing. What happens immediately after Peter's kind of uh, impetuous words, let me build something here to uh, guard you from the heat. It says that before he finished speaking, the Father spoke. And the Father spoke out of heaven, and they heard the voice, and the voice said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You know, it's interesting, this particular passage, even more than others, this passage is saturated with Old Testament allusions. People who study the Bible deeply just comb through this passage looking for words that might relate 
to words that were used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament or the underlying Hebrew word and see how it's brought out here and it's meant to draw contrast or comparison or allude to a certain thing. But this particular sentence is just absolutely full of allusions to the Old Testament. It was meant to communicate very specific things. First of all, this is my beloved son is a reference to Psalm 2 where God says to the Messiah, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The idea is that he was installing his king's son as the Messiah. And you're meant to gather from that that Jesus is the Messiah spoken of in Psalm 2. He is the king who came to reign. They should have seen that. Well, they had confessed that already. But that's what's behind these words. This is my beloved son. But then he says, in whom I am well pleased which is drawn from Isaiah 42. There are servant songs beginning with Isaiah 42 that punctuate the book of Isaiah, and they're all about the coming Messiah. And and the first one starts with these words, Behold my servant in whom my soul delights. And this is drawn from those words, In whom my soul delights, with whom I am delighted, or I am well pleased. Now, what that's meant to communicate is that Jesus is not only the king, Messiah, who's spoken of in Psalm 2, he's also the suffering servant who's spoken of in the servant psalms of Isaiah. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The apostles couldn't put together at this point, how can the Messiah both suffer and reign? The reigning part they liked and they understood. The suffering part they didn't. And they're going to spend the rest of the gospel story unfolding that. And this seed is going to germinate very slowly in their minds until it will bear fruit. And they will fully understand how the Messiah had to suffer and die before he reigned. But then, uh, last thing he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That is a quotation from Moses' words that I mentioned earlier in Deuteronomy 18, where Moses said, God will raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers. Listen to him. In other words, the whole point is that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, or you might say king, priest, and prophet in order. And as king, priest, and prophet, he is the one to whom all obedience and worship is owed. Now, they were slowly starting to understand that, but the full significance of that statement certainly didn't penetrate below being simply a seed placed inside of them. You know, it's interesting, those words were spoken one other time, if you read the Gospels. They were the exact same words that God the Father spoke out of heaven at the baptism of Jesus, that is, at the beginning of his ministry, his public ministry. This is my beloved son, God said out of heaven, after John the Baptist baptized him. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then he quotes it here at this point. And these people were meant to be drawing on all of this and putting together in their minds, but they're very slow at doing it, which is understandable. Now, there's a tag ending on this story, which was read. They're coming down the mountain, and they ask him a question about Elijah. And it seems a little bit of an out-of-place question, and it kind of is. It's one of those things that indicates that these seeds had taken root, but there wasn't anything coming out of them. They were still mulling over How could Elijah have been there? And what they're really asking is, in the Old Testament, the very last words of the Old Testament in the English Bible are this promise that Elijah's going to come before the day of the Lord, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Elijah's going to appear and restore the hearts of people. And Jesus essentially explains to them, well, that is true, and that did happen 
that's what John the Baptist did. John the Baptist was the prophet like Elijah who would be the reappearance of an Elijah-like prophet to call the people back to obedience. This would be effective because there would be some, the remnant, who would give their attention to the Messiah when he comes. Jesus says this is what happened, but the fact that they're even discussing such a mundane part of all that they experienced up there tells you they didn't really have much of a grasp. Again, they were kind of like a field that's been plowed, and when you look at it, you don't know if it's been sown. But we know it's been sown because we read through what it is they, they gathered. Now, these things bore fruit in their lives, rich fruit, so that at the end of his life, the Apostle Peter wrote a letter, Second Peter, in which he describes what his experience was all about. And one of the things he says is this, Second Peter 1, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now at that point, it's clear that these things had borne fruit, and he understood what was going on. And he's describing Jesus with the glory that he ought to describe Jesus. He's understanding the significance of what he did. And that's how God, or that's how Jesus, we might say, prepared the apostles to be the kind of followers who founded and built the Christian movement. Now, the Gospels aren't just written to tell us things that God did long ago. They do record that for us, and they record them accurately. But it wasn't just written for that purpose. The Gospels were written so that we would understand how God works. And if we understand the Gospels well, and we understand this whole principle of sowing and reaping, we know that how God customarily works is he plants seeds in people that bear fruit. You might think of a child growing up in a Christian home, and the child learns Bible verses, and the child goes to Sunday school classes, and the child has an understanding or is given some understanding of who Jesus is. And for many children, they might make an initial kind of confession of what that means to them. But as a parent, you should never take that as the final word. You don't know exactly what that's doing in their lives. All children are very accepting of what their parents say. But as time goes on, what many people experience is that those seeds that are planted begin to bear fruit. They may bear fruit very early. They may, as many people have told me who grew up in Christian homes, they may wander far off before at some point, maybe in their 30s or 40s, these things start to come back to them. Oh, I remember one of my own sons who was uh, struggling with drug addiction and went through a treatment program. And while he was doing that, he really caught on to what God was doing in his life. And things that had been planted inside of him years ago started to make sense. And I remember when he called me and he wanted one person's phone number to call and talk to. And that person was Frank Kierdorf. Now, some of you know Frank Kierdorf. He's passed away now, but 
Frank was Uncle Frankie. He taught all the children here for years, you know, long past when he should have. <laughs> and uh, he was such a great guy. And when my son started to have these things bear fruit in his life, the first thing he wanted to do was talk to Uncle Frankie about it and tell him, here's what God's doing in my life. And that's not only true of children, that's true for adults as well. It's not only true in the sense of coming to faith in Christ, though it's a beautiful picture of that. Seeds are planted, which eventually bear fruit in a person trusting Christ. It's true in the whole building of the Christian life that what God is seeking to do is help us develop a worldview that will stand the test of time, that will help us really face the storms of life. So all of us, at whatever stage we're at in discipleship, we have questions about things that we don't know how to answer Questions about sexual morality as it's taught today compared to what the Bible teaches. Questions about ethics. Questions about how science relates to the Bible. We have all of these questions. And I find that oftentimes people give up when instead they ought to realize that there are seeds planted that God wants to bear fruit in their lives. And all that we can do is water and feed those things. Now, how do we water and feed the seeds that God has planted? Well, we water and feed them by engaging ourselves in the things that God gave us to engage in. He gave us the word that we can read and we can think about. It's not easy to understand, but that's one of the ways you might say that we water and seek to feed these seeds that God has planted inside of us. We can spend time with other Christians. We can come to public worship. We can read books. There's all kinds of things that we can do that will expose us to the word of God and prayer in various ways that are the means by which God seeks to work. But we can only look to God ultimately to germinate those seeds. That's the sovereign grace of God. But when he does that, we begin to experience the fruit of that as it grows up in our lives and we start to see the reality of what those things mean that maybe we tucked away inside long ago but didn't really understand what they were about. That's the nature of discipleship. So when we come to the table, we're participating in that. We're believers. We're participating in that process. If we're believers, we're people who, like Peter, had already come to that point of confessing who Jesus was clearly, understanding that basically, knowing that we ourselves have been forgiven through him. But that's not all there is to the Christian life. That's not all that God intends to do. That's the necessary foundation that you have to have in order to build on it. But what he is seeking to do is to build much more of that, a full understanding of Jesus and who he is. That which the apostles picture for us, they only grasp partially. We need to come to understand that as they did more and more so that we can respond to God. So let's pray that this morning we will water and feed those seeds in ourselves and in each other as we seek to worship Jesus in the way that he gave us. Our Father in heaven, as we come to you, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this story, which is such a significant part of your word. And we want, with more understanding than the apostles had at this point in their lives, we want to hear those words spoken on the mountain. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. We want to take them to heart. We want to be those who listen to Jesus who worship him and seek to obey him because he is the Lord of glory. We pray, Father, that you would make us in our own experience, not like the apostles on this day, but in terms of our understanding and our response to you, 
we want to be eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so we come and ask you that you would make that a reality for us as we come as your people and we share together in these elements. And we pray this in Jesus' name.